I will be reading from Mark 14, 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them. I don't know this man you are talking about. Immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Passover week was crazy. I mean, there were the usual insane number of tourists, but there were crowds everywhere. It took me forever just to get the usuals for the Seder meals. The matzah, the bitter herbs, the Harriset fixins. I'm telling you, the markets were nuts. But that night, that night was even crazier, right? And really strange, like really super strange, you know? You guys don't know what happened, do you? Okay, story time, everyone get comfy. So, I work at the high priest's house. Well, technically I serve in the courtyard, um, so that night there were crowds, of course. But all the talk was about this guy, Jesus. Some were saying he was a great teacher and a healer. Others were saying he was a heretic and a blasphemer. I heard a couple of people saying that he might be the Messiah. Seriously. So, it's getting pretty late. I'm going to go put out the fire and head inside when suddenly a huge group of people rushes into the courtyard. There are temple guards, priests, men, women, all kinds of people. And in the middle of this group, there's a man whose hands are tied. And I hear a few of the other servants around me gasp, and I realize this man whose hands are tied, that's Jesus in our courtyard. And a moment later, he turns to look at me. Like, not around me, like right at me. So it was a little strange and a little alarming. And a little, um, that feeling, uh, like convicting, like I was being convicted of something. But what I was being convicted of, I'm really not sure. I mean, I haven't done anything wrong. Anyway, most of the men in this group hurry right through the courtyard into the high priest's house, taking Jesus with them. But there's a few who stay behind. And I see this one man who looks like he's going to go into the house, but then changes his mind. So he goes over the fire to warm himself. So I'm wondering what he's doing, but then I think, wait, he came in with Jesus. Maybe he wants to join the group inside. So I go up to him, and I say, you're with the Nazarene, right? And I was going to say, do you want me to let you inside? But he just freaked out. He looked at me like I asked him if he was friends with the devil. He said no, kind of rudely, and then he moved away. 
but didn't leave the courtyard. So now I'm suspicious of him, and I don't believe him, because I saw him come in with Jesus in the crowd. So I go to the senior servant, and I tell him what's going on. Like, if this guy isn't here with Jesus, what's he doing hanging around in the high priest's courtyard? So the senior servant crosses over to the man and starts talking to him, and I can't hear most of what they're saying, but the man reacts just like he did with me, and I can hear him from across the courtyard say, no, I do not know that man. Clearly, something's up. The senior servant just shrugs his shoulders and just like, I don't know. Then he goes back inside. But I'm thinking, this guy is connected to Jesus somehow, and I want to know what's up. And I keep thinking, if he isn't hanging around for Jesus, why not just leave? I decide I gotta try to get to the bottom of this. So I walk up to him one more time, and in my nicest, kindest, sweetest tone of voice, I ask him if he's with Jesus. And then he comes completely unglued. He stands up and pretty much shouts, I do not know that man. I think it woke up the entire neighborhood, but whatever, I just back off. But then, then came the strangest moment of all. And considering what I've already told you, this has got to be like off the chart strange. A rooster crows. Well, I mean, it is morning at that time, so it's not too strange, but it's the man's reaction that was the strangest part. When he hears it, he looks horrified by a rooster crow. And then he falls to the ground weeping. Long story short, I had a crazy night. So today we continue on our journey through Lent as we are following Jesus' trial through the gospel accounts and considering this, this journey that led to Jesus' conviction and then to his death on the cross. We consider our own convictions about Jesus as we consider the heart convictions of the people in the story. Well, we are talking about a trial here, and one thing we know about criminal trials, especially the high-profile ones, is that the activity inside the courtroom isn't the only story. Also of note is what happens outside the courtroom. And sometimes the drama there matches what's going on inside. Picture scenes of courthouse steps or hallways outside of a courtroom. Who is there? And what are they doing? There might be news media milling around, waiting to hear the latest update so they can share the news, broadcast it to the public. Speaking of the public, a vanguard of concerned citizens, maybe curious citizens, might be present as well, there to support one side or the other, interested in the outcome. 
When family and friends of both the defendant and the victim or victims are not allowed in the courtroom, you'll find them outside as well, sitting and waiting in tense proximity to one another. And of course, there's the most simple and obvious that might be overlooked, and that is the presence of people who work there. From security to administration to hospitality to building maintenance, those who serve those needs are there day in, day out. Last week, we talked about Jesus' religious trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council of elders led by the high priest Caiaphas. The way that it's portrayed in the gospel accounts is that that is going on at the same time as the story that we heard today. If we wrote it in modern language, we would start out the scripture passage today with the word, meanwhile. This is where, at the home, that Jesus is undergoing trial. Everything you heard about the servant girl uh, making accusations or being curious and asking about Peter's connection to Jesus was happening at that same place outside. Mark has already told us that when Jesus was taken to the high priest, Peter followed and gathered with others in the courtyard. Three of the four Gospels mention a fire in the courtyard. And that's an important part of the story. In this courtyard, which is the large open space that affluent homes were built around in those regions, and a lot of, a lot of uh, re in that area of the world, those homes are still built that way, with, a, with an interior courtyard. Your yard is inside the perimeter of your home. And so it's outdoors. There is a fire we have some stones. We don't have a fire. But the fire serves uh, an important uh, part of the story. It is very plausible that you would need, if you were in the middle of the night, uh, around Passover time in Jerusalem, you would probably need a fire to warm yourself by so you won't freeze. So the fire is very plausible. It's also very plausible that, uh, that Peter, because he was cold, would be drawn to the fire. Of course, you've been at evening fires, right? Where, where in the distance, people are very shadowy, and you can't quite tell who they are. But what happens when they draw near to the fire? The light hits their face. And you can see each other, can't you? Making recognition easier. What happens in the courtyard? while Jesus is undergoing a trial inside the building, is another kind of interrogation. Peter is informally confronted and questioned. And his response will conflate and deepen into a three-time denial of Jesus. Something that Jesus predicted would happen. But Peter swore never would. In Peter's defense, it's important to remember that Jesus has been taken there by force. And at some point in the trial inside the building, 
that we learned last week. At some point, a judgment is rendered, and the text tells us that Jesus was beaten. And so, when we think of the progression of Peter's denials, it's quite plausible that at some point in that process, he begins to hear screams of pain coming from Jesus. You see, Peter has already risked his safety in remaining this close to Jesus at this point. And now a servant girl enters the scene. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, speak of the servant girl, and it is one of the most consistent features among the four accounts. She is, in Greek, a paideskai, a female slave. Now, scholars will tell us that the household of someone as socially prominent as the high priest would have contained a good number of both male and female slaves, servants, who, when not on duty, would gather in the common areas, including the courtyard. The fact that she's a young woman doesn't have the effect of making her less threatening. You might wonder that. Were there all kinds of servants or slaves? And this is just a servant girl low on the totem pole. Perhaps, but not necessarily. In the book of John, she's described also as the gatekeeper, the person who decides to let people in or out of the front door. An important security role that we see a young woman taking in another scene from Peter's life that in actual time of date is only a few months later. But it happens in the 12th chapter of the book of Acts. This is in Jerusalem. The church, the early church, has been praying that Peter, who is in prison, would be released from prison. They've gathered at a home with a similar type of courtyard and a door leaning into the courtyard. Peter is released from prison by the action of an angel of the Lord. So he is led to go and present himself to the people who are praying for his release. So he knocks on the door, and in a comedic turn, a named servant girl named Rhoda comes to the door. Before opening it, hears Peter's voice, is so excited, she runs back and tells everybody without letting him in. Perhaps this servant girl is particularly plucky, like we would imagine Rhoda to be in that scene from the book of Acts. Perhaps she's simply curious. Is she innocent in asking these questions, or is she truly hostile in presenting these claims in pursuit of Peter's answer? What we do know is that the pressure on Peter ramps up with each accusation. The first accusation is personal. You were with the Nazarene, Jesus. We can kind of fill in in contemporary English. It would be followed by a question, weren't you? Now, this is a personal association. I thought I saw you with Jesus. And Peter responds by feigning, hoping, perhaps, that 
that by just saying that he didn't understand what she was saying, it will all be done. I don't understand what you're talking about. What'd you say? The second level, the second accusation, she says, this guy, she didn't use the word guy, but I'm using the word guy. This guy was one of them. Who's them? Now it's, Peter is being accused of association with a group of people associated with Jesus. The them is the group of disciples, the crowd that follow Jesus, the ones who are his supporters. And to this accusation, Peter just gives a simple denial. In Mark, it just says he denied it. And then the third accusation. Surely you are one of them. You're a Galilean. So now it gets more personal. There are obvious characteristics that they find in Peter. There's something about him that identifies him regionally or ethnically with the place from which Jesus and his disciples came, from the place in the north of Israel. And they are now in Jerusalem. And there's something, we don't know what exactly it was, that distinguishes Peter and puts him in the same place as Jesus, something that connects them. It's an identity association. And like I said, things could have really heated up inside the courtroom at that time. And Peter vociferously denies it this time. I do, it makes it very clear. I do not know this man. The text says he calls down curses. We don't know exactly what that meant. But in the setting, we know it's not good. The servant girl is there through all of this. She is a witness to Peter's weakness. And because the gospel writers, all four, include this scene that she shares with Peter, we are witnesses to weakness as well. She's the one who interacts with Peter as he publicly denies even knowing Jesus. It's a painful scene. It is a moment filled with pathos. Pathos evokes pity and compassion. It's a sad scene all the way around. Peter breaking down and weeping when the rooster crowed is a scene that has always meant especially for the faithful who proclaim loyalty to Jesus, it is a scene of utter human weakness. But we aren't meant to say, oh, poor Peter, if only I were there, I would have acted differently. I would have stood up. Now, mind you, if we said that right now, We'd be in good company because we'd be exactly like Peter. Because if you turn back the clock just a few hours, Peter said that exact thing. Surely these other ones would leave you, Lord, but not me. I'm with you to the end. I have your back. And so it's not wrong to be like Peter in that respect. It's not wrong to, to say, if I was in that situation I would stay faithful. 
But in the church, the real depth of understanding of this moment is to think that if it happened to Peter, to Peter of all people, with his passionate love for the Lord, who are we to think that it wouldn't happen to us? Rather than condemn Peter, the church throughout the years has identified with Peter in his weakness. We identify that Peter's weakness we share. Peter, as a human being who loves Jesus and talks a good game, but doesn't always back it up or reach the bar that he set for himself. Our compassion for Peter is in no small part due to the end of the story or the scene. The way Jesus offered grace and restoration to Peter. A restored relationship and friendship after he rose from the dead. We considered last week in the children's message the concept of forgiveness that Jesus taught but also that Jesus modeled from the cross, that as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And when Jesus spoke these words from the cross, they might also be seen as extending to this disciple who denied him and the others who had deserted him. Peter, it turns out, is a picture of weakness restored, strengthened by grace. Cynical minds might wonder why all four Gospels feature this testimony of failure. Um, uh, some of you might know, I don't want to go into depth on this, but, but one of the ways that you, when you study ancient texts, that you kind of find, is this historically accurate, or is it just something that people have made up? You, you kind of go to some logic that we can apply in our uh, daily lives today with news, right? If it seems just too good and too perfect to be true, we might be doubtful that it actually happened. And so a lot of times when people look to the Gospels, were these historic, the presence of failure, things that you might be ashamed to admit about your movement are of special note. Because some people in their wisdom and wanting to whitewash the scene might not have wanted to include this. Wouldn't it be bad for business? To know that someone wilted and failed when his professed Lord was in most need? It most definitely would. If Jesus' business wasn't all about restoring and strengthening people in their human weakness. It turns out that Peter's story of fall and redemption is... The gospel in miniature. So what convictions come up for you as your eyes are focused on this scene of the servant girl and Peter? In being a witness to weakness, here are some ways that this encounter might serve as a reminder to us. The servant girl's questions mattered. And she did too. We actually don't know much about the faith of the servant girl, even from a, from a Jewish perspective, although we would probably assume that if she's working at the high priest's house, there, there was a bar to reach 
on a faith level for that job. This is not an example in Scripture, although there are many that are, of someone who is not a follower of Christ and who becomes a registered or acknowledged follower of Christ. That's not what we have here in the servant girl. But just because she was a servant, it didn't mean that she didn't in that moment ask the most important question of all. Just because she was a young woman doesn't mean she did not ask the most deep and pressing question of that hour. Just because she was not of high social standing, the same. In the inclusion in the Gospels, her questions were not dismissed or her part in the story erased. On the contrary. Reminds us that, that our questions matter. But you know what? The questions of people who do not yet know Jesus as their Lord and Savior matter too. Because they matter to God. Another reminder could be that our moments of weakness have public consequences. Peter, we know from the story, at least what I mentioned, if you hadn't heard this story before, I shared with you that after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he restored Peter to friendship through his grace and forgiveness. So Peter was restored, but the servant girl was likely left with what she witnessed. And it's a reminder to us, even in the midst of of God's work of restoration and forgiveness, that there often are consequences for sin. That there are consequences for that. We are restored, but we have to rebuild trust. That, that sometimes we may not even have the, the means or the agency to, to fully undo what we've done. It's sobering to think that. But we're in a sobering season. We're looking at sobering texts. And certainly, Peter's falling to the ground and weeping is a sobering moment when we think of that challenging aspect. And the final thing that I'm offering that we may want to to consider and be reminded of is, is that you don't have to be in a courtroom to face a trial. In a sense, Jesus isn't the only one on trial that night. Peter faced an interrogation too, albeit much more informal. But it's more like the interrogations you and I might face in regular life. The questioner comes to us, and we find ourselves on the stand with people in the world. Co-workers, friends, family members, neighbors. You're connected to Jesus, aren't you? You go to church, don't you? Are you a Christian? What do we say? How do we respond? 
Something to note, in Jesus' religious trial inside the high priest's home, he's interrogated about his identity as the Messiah, the Son of God. But did you notice that Peter's denials were not about that theological depth? It was about relationship. Are you related to this person? Perhaps that is what we need to be ready to share with others as we go public with our faith. But then again, thinking of the whole story of the servant girl and Peter and his denials and his ultimate restoration, perhaps the most important thing for us to share about Jesus is the fact that he strengthens the weak and restores the broken. And that includes us.